This episode is brought to you by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. For more information on this podcast, go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by Professor Gisli Sigurdsson, a research professor at the Arne Magnusson Institute of Icelandic Studies at the University of Iceland. He has written on many topics pertaining to Norse and Icelandic culture and history, including the Eddas, sagas, Gaelic influence on the early culture and verbal art in Iceland, oral traditions, and much more. He has written two books, which I've placed a link to in the description below, the first titled The Medieval Icelandic Saga and Oral Tradition, A Discourse on Method, and the second titled Gaelic Influence in Iceland. Professor Sigurdsson, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, and I'm very excited to cover what we're talking about today because it's um, something I've thought a great deal about. Today, we're going to be talking about really a plethora of topics pertaining to the discovery and settlement of Iceland in the Icelandic sagas, but uh, particularly uh, Laxdala saga and uh, the notable female character Odd the Deep-Minded. But perhaps just clearing some things up, serving as a, a prelude to our discussion today, Professor Sigurdsson, uh, for those who aren't familiar, what are the Icelandic sagas and could they be used as a source for the Viking Age? Yeah, these are two uh, big questions. We can spend many programs <laughs> on them. The uh, the Icelandic sagas are um, is a, a term that covers a lot of uh, narratives that were um, written in uh, medieval Iceland, that is from the uh, uh, 13th and to 14th century mostly. And they deal with uh, kings of Scandinavia, uh, Viking Age uh, heroes, uh, uh, contemporary narratives about local events in Iceland, and then the um, so-called family sagas that uh, are also known as the sagas of Icelanders. And uh, they, they, that's where uh, we place Laxdæla saga, in which Oed uh, the Deep-Minded um, plays the main, uh, or, or the main initial role, can we say. And uh, uh, Laxdæla saga is one of the uh, oldest uh, sagas. We have uh, fragmentary manuscripts of it from the um, second half of the 13th century. The oldest um, uh, family saga manuscript is from the middle of the 13th century, or even uh, or very close to the um, uh, date of uh, Snorri Sturluson, who we believe was a very important instigator of uh, writing unusual or new material in the Icelandic language in the Middle Ages. 
um, covered mythology um, narratives about the kings of Norway and also these uh, family sagas, which are a bit of a novelty in a medieval context because they um, tell of events in Iceland uh, during the settlement of, uh, of the country, which was um, first uh, visited uh, or inhabited by um, uh, hermits from Ireland and Scotland and uh, who were already here in the country in the late 9th century when the um, Norsemen come and settle the entire country in a what seems to have been a systematic fashion. Uh, so with uh, local chieftains uh, taking um, hold of uh, the best farm land in each region and then placing their followers around them. This uh, takes place in the late 9th, uh, early 10th century in a swift uh, movement uh, at the time when uh, the Norse were uh, pagan but uh, had already come into contact with the Gaelic peoples in the British Isles. There are uh, Norse colonies at the time in uh, Dublin and uh, and elsewhere in both the islands, Scottish islands and elsewhere in Ireland. And these are the people who uh, are uh, running the settlement and build a new culture in a new new territory, the first new society, as um, it's sometimes called, in the same sense as we later get in um, North America and Australia with people from different cultures, uh, in this uh, case uh, from uh, Scandinavia and the British Isles, come together and make uh, something entirely new in the history of, uh, of their uh, part of the world. And this culture then becomes uh, Christian in a peaceful fashion by a legal decision in the year 1000. And um, uh, when they uh, gradually develop the art of uh, writing, it uh, uh, shows that they have a wealth of oral memories, oral stories about this Viking Age past, this uh, first uh, coming of um, people to a virgin territory, how they claimed the land and how it was like to live there and um, uh, how people got into conflict and solved their conflicts, how they changed their religion and how many things improved with Christianity. And where the family sagas as a whole, as a genre, literary genre, they cover this uh, period of settlement and the uh, first uh, eight uh, centuries in the country and the overall picture you get of a new society that uh, is converted to Christianity and gives up all the old uh, feuds and uh, uh, culture of revenge and, um, and uh, pagan ethics and takes up the um, Christian uh, ideal of uh, forgiveness and uh, peaceful living of course that is an ideal and doesn't always match the reality as we as we all know and lifestyle saga is um, uh, structured on um, a very uh, literary or legendary model the main character after uh, either this uh, great um, grandmother of uh, of the main characters in the story is a uh, is a woman called Guðrún and that is a name of what we know well, from the uh, Nibelungen uh, legend, as it was um, told and uh, retold in prose and poetry in Iceland in the uh, in the twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth centuries, and um, she has a sequel of uh, husbands, and of course doesn't uh, uh, marry the one that we believe she loved most, but and uh, he has a duel with um, his former foster brothers, who gets the, um, the this most desired woman, Guðrún, and a very tragic story of love and hate and revenge, and um, that takes place in the um, 
western region of Iceland that was heavily settled by uh, people from the uh, British Isles, where either the deep-minded was uh, coming from. So it's uh, it's uh, it's a great, great uh, sort of epic story that starts in um, the pagan past and takes us all the way into into Christianity through uh, generations of people living in the region. And um, then it's a question of um, historicity, of course. Is this um, is this uh, preserving some uh, real memories of historical events, uh, or or what is it? Because uh, we see it's. Uh, exceptionally well-structured as a literary narrative. It has all these uh, heroic, uh, legendary motifs and uh, the characters and the conflicts, the love affairs and uh, how they interact is uh, very much based on the uh, Nibelungen uh, cycle. And uh, then then again, we can also say, well, this is what is happening all the time in in our lives, that um, people fall in love and don't get the the partner that they desire and end up with something... um, very different and uh, long for it uh, the rest of their life. That's what all the pop songs are about, and so on. That's why they are so popular. And uh, so it's no um, no uh, great surprise that this is also a big theme in, in the medieval period. And uh, but uh, the magnitude of the characters, of course, uh, can be explained by this: how how much they are built on these uh, grand, uh, even opera-like characters that focus on these very central feelings in um, the, in the individuals that um, play play the main role even even either this um she she comes from uh, dublin as where she was a viking uh, queen of um, wife of olaver queen olaver the white who also has um, a resemblance in uh, historical sources in uh, ireland even though historians always um, have an easy time pointing out inaccuracies in these narratives, and one should not be surprised by that, because if there is a historical continuity, which I believe there is, of course it's uh, through oral storytelling traditions through many, many centuries, and then um, it's bound to change. It's bound to take on this literary form, and um, that is just uh, the nature of narrative. So uh, exact dates and so on are um, bound to change, but uh, it's... uh, Phenomenal, I think, that this name of Olaf Kuiti matches um, uh, an olive that uh, was in uh, in Dublin around the same time. And some of the other names in the family trees of these people also have a match in historical characters in that region, in the, um, in the Viking Age or in the 9th century. So what is also interesting is that uh, Öder, she is presented as um, early Christian. She comes with uh, Christianity. With her, but there are here. Of course, we run into difficulties because we have more than one tradition about either in Iceland. So uh, she figures in more texts than uh, just a single saga. But um, the uh, the uh, interesting narrative about her is that she um, is presented as a Christian from from uh, Dublin, and we know that um, the Norse who were there in the late ninth century were converting to Christianity at the time because Ireland, as we know, was well well Christian by then. And um, so she brings in as many other characters associated with, uh, with uh, this uh, region seem to have done. They bring Christianity with them from the British Isles already long before the um, official Christianization of Iceland in the year 1000. 
And we also see that it is uh, people from this region that move on to Greenland with uh, Eric the Red in the late 10th century. And uh, we see that there are no pagan graves in, um, in Greenland. Uh, the earliest graves there uh, are uh, Christian. So what the archaeology seems to be telling us there is that the people coming from the region of uh, the deep-minded, this Christian grand Viking queen from, from Dublin, uh, when they emigrate to Greenland uh, 100 years later, they uh, have kept up their Christianity and uh, that is to say been Christian all along. So this picture, this overall picture of uh, the culture in Iceland as being Norse pagan converted to Christianity in the year 1000 is probably a bit more complicated than that. And um, she also, if you uh, think about the, her, uh, the narrative about her um, coming to Iceland, either she, um, uh, when she is widowed in Dublin, she takes away with all her retinue and uh, goes to Scotland, where um, she uh, has a fleet built and uh, loses her um, uh, most prominent son and continues through the uh, Isles of Scotland up to the Faroe Islands, ending up in Iceland, always leaving someone behind to... Um, to uh, build up, um, uh, uh, not an empire, of course, but um, some uh, influence and, uh, and status in every region. And uh, very much in a similar manner as we uh, have a, a mythological memory about uh, the King Odin, who later became the, king, the god Odin, when uh, King Odin uh, moved north through uh, Europe and up to Scandinavia, he did exactly the same. He married off his uh, kinsmen. Uh, along the way, in order to build up um, uh, a network of of his power and influence, until he finally settled in um, in Scandinavia and was eventually, as we are told in the narratives of Iceland, mistakenly taken for um, being a god, uh, and uh, was uh, taken as such until, of course, um, he was replaced by by Christ and and the Church. So. It's it's a very mythological model, that is the point of the story, that Auður's uh, uh, travel is built on. And so, in that sense, she becomes the, um, the great maternal founder of Iceland. And um, with this uh, connection back to early Christianity and the Gaelic culture, which we also see in um, a little anecdotal uh, variation in Lagstalasaga, that one of the uh, slaves that uh, comes to Iceland, bought on the um, uh, Scandinavian slave market, and claims to be mute, turns out to be um, uh, an Irish princess who teaches her um, illegitimate uh, son that she has with her uh, master, teaches him secretly Irish, and he eventually, as a grown man, and of course is um, the best of, uh, of all in his, um, his uh, neighborhood and of his age, he goes to Ireland to, um, with a message from his uh, Irish princess mother when all that is revealed, her origins, that is. And, um, and uh, the first man he meets, of course, is the king, his uh, grandfather, and the foster mother of, uh, of his mother. And he is welcomed in Ireland. In, now we are talking about the historical memory of this um, semi-legendary narrative uh, in Iceland in the 13th century, not necessarily historical facts here. And he is uh, offered to be the king of, uh, of Ireland, but of course he, um, 
declines because he has to go back home to Iceland. So that is how how uh, fond he was of his uh, of his family and home region there. That perhaps also demonstrates the difficulty in using the narratives as a accurate historical source, but because events of this kind cannot be um, factual in in our usual sense, but the overall picture of of the culture that the um, story presents, so with this slave woman that uh, of a noble background in Ireland that is brought as a uh, to to Iceland and uh, later, um, of course, uh, gro- uh, steps up the social ladder. There is realistic enough, and is probably um, a realistic historical memory of the overall development of the culture in, in the new country. That's fascinating. Now, I'm really curious about sort of how these stories came into existence and how they were recorded. So talking about the how Laxdala Saga was written, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, who wrote it down? Uh, when was it written down? And before it was written down, would this story have basically been an oral tradition that people would have told one another, perhaps passed down through generations? Yeah, that is uh, the big big question. And uh, if I could uh, give you the uh, definite uh, final uh, answer to that, I would um, we would close our business here and uh, go and do something else. That is, um, uh, it's uh, very tricky. Uh, we think it's uh, written around the same time as we have the oldest manuscripts. So the late uh, second half of the 13th century. And um, it's also tricky to talk about authors in this manuscript culture, which is um, uh, using oral stories uh, as a source or as an inspiration. Again, we can debate that for a while, uh, uh, but we can all agree as an inspiration uh, for uh, written narratives that are constructed in a fashion that can only be um, presented in uh, written form with the middle beginning, middle, and end. And um, because uh, if these, and that is what I want to assume, if these stories that we have in the written version of Lagstalasa uh, are reflective of uh, oral stories about the same characters and uh, similar events, or we can say similar characters as well as similar events, because when is a character the same, when he or she moves from one story to another. and um, But uh, it's uh, very tricky to get around that model that um, we had the wealth of oral stories about all of these characters. It's uh, impossible to claim that they were always told in a chronological order. You could tell a story about either the deep-minded, about her background, where she came from, how she fared, where she... Um, called in on her way to Iceland and so on, and who were her children, and um, and how did she die, and um, and then you can jump on to uh, some other character in the saga, and you can talk about him or her for a while, and, and so on. You can go back and forth in time in an oral uh, milieu, but uh, of course the manuscript doesn't allow for that uh, that freedom. It has to be constructed in a, in a different fashion. And um, Snorri Sturluson, whom I mentioned earlier, he generated a, a, a group of uh, interesting, interested uh, writers around him. His two nephews in particular, they are known to have been active 
as uh, writers or at least uh, dictators to scribe. So that is, um, again, what um, the model we have to think of, that, um, or even instigators of works that they have uh, some, someone else actually writing for them. So there can be all kinds of uh, models for, for that. And uh, Lagstyla saga, because of its emphasis on strong women, both Auður and the main character Guðrún, who holds the entire narrative together with her um, uh, marriages, um, they seem to, uh, m- m- much in Lagstyla saga seems to reflect both the interests and the uh, life and the actions of the women around Sturla Thorðarsson, one of the uh, two nephews of Snorri Sturlason. So uh, we have reasons to be- reasons to believe that it was written again. We cannot say by whom, but under the supervision of uh, of uh, the women around Sturla, or under the supervision of Sturla, if we want to uh, maintain that males must have been the active uh, individuals behind writing at this time, which is not necessarily uh, correct, but. Um, those are the, uh, the or theirs are the known names that we have as um, as active writers. So that, that then we have a written text in the late 13th century, and we need all this oral tradition then between the 9th and the uh, 13th to um, be able to claim that there is some historical memory behind it. And and the text is impossible to explain unless there is this continuity. There is this continuity of uh, oral narratives being told and retold and reshaped and always um, reflecting the interests of um, the current culture at the time. But uh, the historical kernel and reality that is preserved through these ages makes it possible for us to claim that um, uh, at least we have in these stories, uh, these written stories, a real reflection of how people uh, remembered their. Um, their forefathers and foremothers in the region. And we also have reasons to believe that they were not all that wrong about um, the main uh, main frame of that story. So I think that um, answers um, all of these questions in a diplomatic fashion so that uh, most of us could agree on most of the content of the answer. That. Yes, certainly. That's a very clear way of going about it, I think. Now, you mentioned that the part of Iceland where Laxdala Saga is centered around Western Iceland was um, uh, heavily populated by people from the British Isles. And I want to talk a little bit about the Gaelic influence of Iceland and if there is any Gaelic influence within Laxdala Saga. So what kind of uh, cultural contributions did that people bring to the island? Yeah, again, that is, um, that is uh, there's a set of uh, tricky problems that we have to solve before we can start uh, claiming any uh, Gaelic influence, because that's where orality, for example, comes into it. The written culture of Iceland in the 13th and 14th century is totally different from everything that was happening in Scandinavia at the time. We have, of course, a very close political connection with Scandinavia. Iceland is an independent state from uh, the um, foundation of a local parliament, or Icelandic parliament, in 930 until uh, it becomes part of the uh, Norwegian kingdom in 1262, official part of the Norwegian kingdom. But before that, there had been uh, developing very strong political ties with uh, Norway. But uh, we have reasons to believe that um, the culture was much more influenced from 
the uh, British Isles than it was from uh, Norway when it was first established in the 9th century and it was a part of the historical development that people turned to Norway rather than the Norse colonies in uh, Scotland and Ireland where they most of them uh, originated. Because And now we even have a genetic evidence to support that. It um, seems to uh, show now that uh, uh, more than 50, even as much as 60% of the women, uh, original first women that came to Iceland were of Gaelic genetic background and about 20% of the males also. And then that uh, doesn't account for the uh, the Norsemen who had grown up in the uh, colonies in, in Ireland and Scotland or the Isles and then emigrated to Iceland. So there's a very, very strong Gaelic uh, contribution to the first culture of Iceland. And we see also in the way they are um, presented in Scandinavia and how they remember their uh, past in uh, Scandinavian courts is that they take over the professional court poetry of Scandinavia, where you have uh, individual poets who um, come exceptionally well trained in um, in uh, composing poetry in uh, complicated uh, meters that uh, are build their poetic uh, diction on um, mythological uh, background, uh, mythological references, and um, they. Um, you need uh, some professional skill also to understand this poetry because part of the art is to make it as complicated as possible. And um, this seems to be a, a phenomenon or a, 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 a professional art that uh, developed uh, exclusively in Iceland and was taken over certainly by um, poets from Iceland. And um, I think in that lies the key to um, this notion of Gaelic influence in the culture that it brings the notion of professionalism uh, to the practice of verbal art. All cultures, of course, have their uh, uh, oral uh, stories and, and poems of some sort, but the professionalism that um, is exhibited in, um, in the Skaldic poetry is uh, something else, and uh, that um, uh, cannot exist without stories about the poems uh, performed and composed, so the stories that lead up to why the poem was composed, what it is about, and so on, so the two always uh, go hand in hand, hand in hand when um, when uh, both the stories and the poems are performed at an oral level. So I think uh, in order to explain why Iceland then is so different when it comes to the creative moment in uh, the written uh, context, that there is a, a moment in the 13th century when people realize that they can use the culture that the church has brought uh, uh, with it. Uh, and this exclusively at the time used for um, writing uh, historical narratives about um, about kings or the um, courtly literature of Europe or, or the well-known religious texts that um, the uh, the church needed for the practice of the religion. But uh, what uh, is uh, exclusive and new in the way the people of Iceland use all of this material, all of these ideas, all of this knowledge and learning and so on, is that um, Snorri Sturluson, the writer I mentioned earlier, he he is uh, makes a name for himself in writing the best and most artistic uh, version of the um, uh, narratives about the Norwegian kings. But um, then he gets the idea that his training as an oral poet, uh, with uh, all the mythological background that was required, can be uh, constructed into the written form in a similar fashion as he sees all uh, his uh, fellow students who are studying to be clerics within the church, 
uh, are getting their information, which was not available in that written form to Snorri when he was training as a young man. He gets this brilliant idea to put it all into a, a book. And uh, the Edda, Snorri's Edda, which is our main source now for um, the mythology of the Norse, and we often forget that it's a source about the mythology, as Snorri in the 13th century constructed it in a book and uh, used it for his um, his uh, practice as a poet in his time. And he also is uh, well-traveled in, um, in Scandinavia. He is t- trying to play a part in uh, politics, royal politics in, in Norway. And he becomes aware of the role that literature and books are starting to play with um, people who take them seriously in the social ladder climbing of his day. And uh, he sees that when he comes home, he can um, uh, probably have... Uh, a saga written about uh, the ancestor in uh, in the area where he lives, Katlagrimur and Eyjil, Katlagrimsson. So the saga of Eyjil, which is uh, most likely the first and oldest uh, saga written then, if this model is correct, before 1240. Again, not necessarily by Snorri, but instigated by him in some fashion, and certainly comes from his cultural milieu. And uh, and then people get this idea, well, this is what we can do. It becomes a fashion. And in a small culture, if something, something becomes fashionable, everyone has to do it. Like the towers in uh, small Italian villages. If uh, one important family had a big tower, then the next important family had to show its importance by building a, an even higher, higher tower. And so, so it went on until uh, they had run out of uh, uh, land for, uh, for more towers in the village. And, um, but everyone had demonstrated their wealth and uh, and status by their own personal tower. And that is um, how the uh, sagas were used all around Iceland. Everyone had their saga written for the region. And uh, as a result, we have the entire country covered with um, these narratives about the settlement period, as well as a systematic collection of um, informative genealogies and short stories about who came first to every single part, farmland, uh, around the country clockwise. I think uh, we can claim that that is something of a world record that uh, no other cultures on the planet can claim that the absolute first meeting of man and nature was recorded from oral memory by the people of the, of the culture itself in such a systematic uh, and um, uh, semi-historical so we can claim that uh, at the time when people were writing this, they felt that they were writing historical narratives, even though we may see that they were uh, filling in the gaps a bit more than uh, they would have been willing to admit at the time of writing, perhaps. How interesting. Well, Professor uh, Geisley Sigurdsson, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Vikings. It's been a delight speaking with you. And this has been something I've wanted to cover for quite a long time on my podcast, and I certainly have learned a lot. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. 